und willkommen im Podcast. Ich freue mich, dich wieder hier zu haben. Heute sprechen wir alles vor dem Ersten Weltkrieg in Deutschland. Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. Our resident history teacher is back with a topic I think he's now kicking himself for choosing. From our off-air conversations, he's had countless amounts of pages and notes, including countless amounts of research in this mammoth period of German history. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Hello. Yes, thank you for having me again. And of course, it's lovely to be here. Just... Why did I select a century of German history to talk about? Previously, I've talked to you about, you know, shipwrecks or, you know, the troubles, you know, a city that I grew up in. And now I've just gone in for a century of German history. Um, listen, it's fascinating, but you're right. It's been, uh, <laughs> it's certainly been a challenge doing the research on it. And this time it wasn't even pushed by me. The troubles was definitely pushed by myself. This was a topic you came up with all on your own. So you've, you've got... You can't blame me for this one. At all. That's true. That's true. I uh, well, you know, I, I learned a little about a period of German history that I wasn't familiar with. So uh, mm. hopefully that will be the case for for our listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, pre sort of World War One and World War Two, we kind of we get the the the, the British side of, of of what was going on. But obviously, there's a whole world out there, isn't there? So obviously, the the perspective is different from different places. So for me, well, exactly. that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that it seems like for us, Germany kind of turns up in 1914 and we just know that they had a Kaiser who was a bit of a character. Mm. Uh, they had grey uniforms and they almost won World War One. So today I just want to go through and just look at what was happening. And, you know, I've gone back 100 years just to look a little bit about what was going on in Germany. What was it like? And like you say, to get something other than than what you and I would be very familiar with, which is the British perspective. Of course, I know the Irish perspective, too, but we weren't a key player in the build up to World War One. But, you know, I, I hope people find it. Uh, I hope people find it interesting. Um, and uh, I can promise a few interesting facts and uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how we get on. Do any whales kill anyone? No, that's true. There are no whale attacks on this one. <laughs> I've had it a lot... very worrying if there were. I've had lots of people message me going, oh my God, I, d- I didn't know that that was a real story. Like, thanks for bringing it to the table. So mm. I said that I would pass on um, the, uh, the messages from that. So yeah, every, everyone sort of said to me that that's amazing that it's sort of come from a real story going into Moby Dick so yeah ah, well that's so. lovely to hear well actually now just as coincidentally as I look over my notes uh Kaiser Wilhelm the first his nickname was the flounder I thought you were gonna and, say was uh, on that ship <laughs> 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 he ate all the yeah. people that's right what well, one detail that I missed out last time yeah so uh there we go yeah his nickname was flounder so we've got just one little maritime link here and of course, the dreadnoughts. But but we'll we'll come on to the dreadnoughts later on. I think. Yeah. Did you know? Obviously, I I don't have children. But if I was to have a child, I would name it um, uh, Wilhelm. Little facts for you. 
Um, hmm, there we go. And of course, I think this this podcast is is legally binding. So, <laughs> so should this happen in the future, Raleigh, I, I think you're committed now, Wilhelm. You, I love it. Can you imagine? Yeah, I just need to get a strong sort of um, southern Bavarian accent on that, and it would sound amazing. Mm. Um, Germany is somewhere that I would I would love to live. It's somewhere I've visited many a times. Um, I'm I'm actually visiting later this year. Um, and I would move there tomorrow if only I could speak German, Patrick. But I can't. Yes, that's uh, that that that's uh, a, a minor stumbling block, I think. Mm, although when I uh, all all the times that I have been to Germany, um, the 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 people are amazing, and and because a lot of the people that I've met want to practice their English, they they're very happy to talk to you in English. And to be honest, some of their the the English that they speak is better than. The English that I speak. So, yeah, good for them. <laughs> absolutely, mm. absolutely. I'm going to hand it over to you, Patrick. We are all yours. Right. Well, thank you very much. So before I begin the topic, which really is Germany before World War One. So I'm going to stop before the causes of World War One really, uh, really begin. There's dates that jump out at us in German history. You know, we've got 1989, we've got fall of the Berlin Wall. And, you know, that one, that one's pretty modern. And I'm sure many of our listeners, if not in school when they've learned about German history, uh, perhaps they, they've read up on it themselves. You know, if you're listening to this, you're either a relative of Ollie's or you like history. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm looking back here at some of the years, you know, 89, November, fall of the Berlin Wall, 1945, end of World War Two. 1933, we've got the Nazis being elected. I mean, 29, we've got the Wall Street crash. And we've got the political machinations of the early 30s. 1919, of course, we've got the Treaty of Versailles. What's your knowledge of German history like in the 20th century? So I uh, am very specific on uh, post-World War II um, Mm. German history, Um, especially Berlin. Berlin is somewhere that I have been fascinated with for a long time and i feel like uh, sort of this this side of the the channel we kind of to us world war 2 ended in um 1945 and that was it and we went on to live mm. our our merry little lives but in europe it was it was around the the consequences of what had happened were around for a lot longer into the 90s so mm. um uh, East Berlin and West Berlin is something that fascinates me massively. So if we we think everyone knows about the Berlin Wall, uh, if you don't know about the Berlin Wall, it was um, a wall <laughs> that was uh, uh, that was built basically down the middle, pretty much of a city. Mm. So uh, mm. streets were cut in half, um, apartment blocks were separated, tram lines were boarded up one side and, and the other. Um, and it's where um, uh, sort of Soviet Union territory ended and Western, quote, democracy started. So there was a real culture sort of clash. Um, it, it was actually the East Germans um, that put the wall up and pretty much overnight. So mm. it didn't actually, it wasn't... Um, Am I allowed to say this word? It wasn't erected until <laughs> until uh, 1961, which seems quite late on after 45. But it was the um, the communist government, basically, of um, 
German Democratic Republic, or easier, like more easily known as uh, the GDR. So, or just East Germany. Okay, so it was it was a wall that ran basically the whole length of Berlin. Um, from east to west, and it sprung up overnight, as I said. Um, and the the official purpose of the Berlin Wall was to keep uh, so-called Western fascists from entering Germany, so entering East Germany. The real reason is because there was an influx of people trying to flee the Soviet Union into the West, and it was a way of keeping them in. Hence, mm. why the hence why the wall went up. Um, it, yeah, it basically stopped mass movement. So, um, as I mean, you mentioned earlier that the wall like stood until 1989 and you see their massive, um, uh, like world famous, uh, videos and, and news clips of the wall coming down and people walking through it. And it was, a um, it was an amazing moment and we were alive when that was happening, mm. <laughs> which is, mm. which is, um, uh, amazing. Cause that's. Um, that was a a, a a knock-on effect from from World War Two. Yeah, you know you're right, and I've uh, you know I I've read a, a decent bit about the Cold War. I've taught it at A level, and mm. you know done some examining and whatnot. And you, you you do forget then. I'd never really thought of it that way. That in 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 many ways, like World War Two properly ended in 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 the early nineties. Yeah. Mm. And, it's an interesting way that, that, that you put it there. Um, th- did you know what uh, Khrushchev said about Berlin? No. <laughs> it's, uh, one of his, he was a man uh, who, had, who had a way with words. He said, Berlin is the testicles of the West. When I squeeze it, they scream. <laughs> so anytime he wanted to put pressure on whoever his American adversary was, he would put pressure on, on Berlin. Mm. And if you fly over Berlin, they you can see even today, through light bulbs, east and west, because even today they use different light bulbs. Do you know? So you can see the different parts of the city. I was literally going to send you a photo of, of, of the aerial view and get you to describe it, but you've done it already, so that's amazing. So, yeah, you can. If you, if you see an aerial view of Berlin, the light bulbs are completely different. It's mad, isn't it? Mm. And, and mm. you can see where it was it was separated. Um, mm. Did you know? I, I mean, sorry, sorry, go, go on. on. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, clearly, we're going to be doing our next episode on the Berlin Wall, aren't we? Oh, we're going to have to. I, it's, <laughs> I'm really passionate. I've been there a few times, and I, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, mm. So the the German Chancellor Angela Merkel is an East Berliner, although she was born in the West. Mm. She mm. Uh, she moved to the East when she was very young. So she was brought up in East Berlin. Um, right. Yeah, which is amazing. Um, mm. Also, so I'm just going to, I'm picking a few sort of names from the world stage at the moment. Um, mm. So Vladimir Putin was a Soviet spy in former East Germany as well. And his Stasi ID card was found in an archive in Dresden quite recently. Um, really? Yeah. So for people who don't know what the Stasi was, so the way that East Berlin was kind of controlled was uh, the secret police. Now, anyone could have been the secret police. So you didn't know if it was your neighbour, your brother, your mother, your sister, whatever. Um, and I think that was the fear. People knew that they existed, but they didn't know who they were. 
So it was kind of a way of trying to get everyone to behave and to follow sort of the ideology of the Soviet Union and the East Berliners. Um, it actually turns out there were less Stasi than what people thought, but just the mm. idea of the Stasi would kind of control people. So it was sort of like mass hysteria, but very like secretive and quiet. Um, but they would write everything down. If you, I don't know, let's say, for example, um, uh, you and your wife, um, and your wife was a, a, a member of the Stasi, you had no idea, probably would have had no idea for, for a long time, until the Stasi um, documents were unclassified, and you would find out like later on that actually your family were sort of telling the authorities absolutely everything that you were doing. They had millions and millions of sheets of paper on people that they thought could a uh, sort of um, barter with the West or they were mm. enemies of the state. Um, and really, even like that people would follow you. People would write down, like, when you went to the toilet, they would know your routine. And thousands and thousands of... I mean, it must have been so boring to write <laughs> all this stuff. Mm. Um, mm. But, yeah, that that's how kind of East Berlin was run. And I don't know, Patrick, if you've seen or our listeners have, have, have seen um, the television show Deutschland 83 and Deutschland mm. 86. Um, mm. Now, it's a German-American-made... Um, TV series and it's set during um, this sort of period in the 80s of um, East and West Berlin and it is so well done. I mean it's in German but it's fine, you get subtitles um, mm. it's it's so good and, and also a book that I would recommend um, Stasi Land as well is also a very good book um, uh, that everyone should read if they're interested in Berlin as a place <laughs> so I mean I could go I could bang on about Berlin for ages but I definitely think maybe we should leave that for <laughs> for for another episode but yeah that's just my that's my knowledge I guess on um on, on Berlin east and west um and Germany as a, as a whole because we know that Berlin is obviously the capital so mm, absolutely um well, my goodness. So it turns out you know a lot about Germany in, in the 20th century. Uh, may I ask, do, do you know much about Germany in the 19th century? No, I am. Um, uh, my knowledge uh, sort of comes from the, the royal family and uh, Victoria and mm-hmm. how a lot of them intermarried. And obviously Albert was German. She was half German. Um but Germany wasn't Germany as we see it today. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, well, uh, and I think there's no better place then to begin <laughs> our journey back in time. Ooh. So um, let me see. I want to take you right the way back to Napoleon, actually. So Napoleon occupied or uh, had his, you know, puppet rulers, you know, member of his fam- members of his family. Uh, occupied various different European countries. Mm. And the occupation of what we now know as Germany really began the creation of Germany, if only in the minds of uh, of, of German people. Mm. So uh, Prussia 
there I'm going to be talking about Prussia a lot today. It was the strongest German state. So picture, I guess, uh, essentially North Germany mm-hmm. was Prussia. And uh, of course, as, as any history teacher will know, it's always confused with Russia. Um, so Prussia was really the dominant force uh, within Germany, and it was the dominant force in leading this uh, resistance against the Napoleonic forces. Mm. So in 1815, Napoleon was finally defeated. So he was defeated for the second time at the Battle of Waterloo. Um, and then the... I want to Congress... sing ABBA. Waterloo. Well, don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> I actually hate ABBA, and I hate Mamma Mia. Like, I'm sorry, Everyone. Oh, do you? Yeah, well, I, that's very quiet. I hope we've got no Swedish listeners. Because, I um, uh, they are a treasure of that country, Ollie. Mm, they're terrible, awful. <laughs> Bend them. <laughs> well, uh, Sweden, of course, were uh, one of the allies who, who fought alongside Prussia against Napoleon. Now, mm. in 1806, the Prussians and various European allies uh, were defeated at the Battle of uh, Jena Urstedt. Again, my apologies for my pronunciation. And now Prussia. Germany, was was occupied. And it was occupied until 1813, when there was a great Allied victory at Leipzig. Now, this, throughout the 1800s, was their Prussian, German, Germanic, symbolic victory over the Napoleonic forces. And uh, Waterloo never really has stuck in the German imagination. I think that's been more British and, and Belgian, mm. even though, of course, that the Prussians saved the day, arriving late, uh, literally late in the day in, in the <laughs> Battle of Waterloo. But after Napoleon was defeated, the map of Europe was drawn up. And this was a century largely of British domination internationally. You know, Britain was by far the wealthiest, most powerful country on the planet. But within Central Europe, Prussia in the peace negotiations was able to was able to take quite a lot of land, actually. And economically, they got, uh, very importantly, a huge amount of land around the, the River Rhine, the Ruhr coal field. They got huge coal reserves in the Saar region. Of course, the French would uh, go on to occupy the Saar after World War I. Mm. They got large amounts of iron ore. And... Um, of course, then there was a boom in railway building in the late 1830s, not to the extent that we saw in Britain. But Germany really was uh, had huge natural resources. Uh, Prussia was really driving the place. But psychologically, the Napoleonic Wars created the idea of, of Germany. And there's this phrase of defensive nationalism. Not the nationalism that, that we would be familiar with, with Kaiser Wilhelm II, you know, wanting to create the German Empire or with uh, the Nazis and wanting to control continental Europe, if not more. Um, but this idea that when Germany was invaded, that's when they came together uh, as, as a nation. And of course, many historians have uh, noted the role that the Brothers Grimm have played in bringing the, uh, the culturally uh, Germans together. So in those decades after 1815, just bit by bit, Prussia started to not announce itself as a player on the European stage, but just build up wealth, build up strength. And uh, really, it was until, I guess, the 1840s, it was just a place that was quietly getting a bit of motion together. Mm. Uh, there was no discussion of a, of a Germany that was going to be united or anything like that. But... Um, but just just bit by bit, people who, uh, particularly in Britain, people who would have kept an eye on European politics would have noticed that Prussia 
seem to be a par of the future. Mm. It's interesting that you've mentioned Napoli, Le, Napoli, Napoleon, and um, <laughs> I don't know why I said Napoli there. Um, it's interesting that you said Napoleon and and Germany in the same sentence because you obviously you don't ever put them two together. Well, I don't anyway. Obviously, Napoleon very French. Mm. Um, well, exactly. I mean, because he. Well, because I mean, really, they they exported the revolution, didn't they? As, mm. as any successful revolution tries to do. Um, so yeah, they they occupied as many places in Europe as they could, really, mm. and inadvertently. Uh, and if, you know, as historians, Ollie, we can look back and think, well, that 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 just points a straight line to the unification of Germany, doesn't it? Mm. Of course, it doesn't necessarily, but it certainly did provide Prussia with an opportunity to build. Yeah. So. Like, how did Napoleon, like, help create Germany then? Well, I think just by occupying Prussia. He, by well, actually, by occupying all of the Germanic lands, he brought the Germans closer together. And he almost fostered, there was within northern Germany, 37 different states and principalities. Mm. Um, so he brought them together under a common flag. So it was really the first time since the old... Uh, 15 and 1600s trading group, the Hanseatic League. It was really since then the first time that these people were were brought together. And of course, listen, as soon as the common enemy went <clears throat> in 1815, yeah, of course, you know, the states all started to go their own way, but the seed was planted. So that was the role that Napoleon inadvertently played mm-hmm. in the creation of, I suppose, France's biggest foe over the next uh, 150 years. Well, yeah, that's interesting because a Frenchman creates ultimately a unified germany obviously eventually down the line that um, yeah yeah uh, that will conquer france mm. Mm. in world war Two. um sorry i digress that's really interesting mm. thank you very much thank you um and then, of course, I'm going to jump forward from, from 1815 to the 1848 uh, revolutions, which is one of those points in history of like great <clears throat> idealism around Europe, of liberalism. Um, not yet socialism, but certainly you could see lots of socialist, uh, uh, socialist ideas within, mm. these, within these revolutionaries. And really, um, you know, in the years leading up to 1848, there was poor harvests. And really, uh, I mean, I think that in most revolutions you see across history, you do see food shortages beforehand. And of course, Mm -hmm. in the 1840s, there was the potato blight, which, uh, of course, at this time was uh, tragically uh, really hitting Ireland in in, in such a horrendous way. But of course, this this hit potatoes right the way across Europe. It was just that Ireland were were solely uh, reliant on them. Now, the 1848 revolutions uh, that broke out in March uh, of that year all around Europe, you know, fanned by low wages, mass unemployment, rising food prices. They failed in Prussia. They failed across Germany. But again, they almost sparked this idea of a German nationalism. Mm. And uh, there were gatherings in in Berlin. Uh, Prince Wilhelm who would go on to become Wilhelm I, who was the grandfather of Wilhelm II, Wilhelm II being the Kaiser at the start of World War I, yeah. who in turn was the grandson of Queen Victoria. Know, as you it's said, all, they were all, all very interlinked. It, it was all interlinked, wasn't it? Yeah. But Prince Wilhelm 
chose to send in the cavalry. They opened fire on the masses. Uh, Prince Wilhelm had said famously, only soldiers can help against Democrats. So this was a man who, who had really nailed his, his, his colours to the mast. But then, um, when several civilians were killed at the funerals, uh, his, uh, his father actually joined the, the protesters who, who were marching <laughs> through Berlin, um, which, which people really, really respected. But again, it goes to show that at the time, no one really knew what German nationalism was. Because on the one hand, you've got the prince of the country who is sending in the army against the Democrats. But then you've got the king who is actually joining in. So there's really this idea that no one's really sure what this is. And in many ways, it was very exciting at the time. And like I said, it failed. But these liberal ideas from 1848 stayed in Germany and stayed for, for decades, I guess, in any industrial nation you're going to have you're going to have socialism mm. aren't you because people are going to demand uh you know fairness within society yeah um and those ideas of 1848 stayed and no matter how hard any politician or kaiser tried they just couldn't get rid of them so those that those revolutions like impacted prussia massively they did but again the consequences of them because at the time it was Nothing that we'd see as a revolution today. There wasn't, there wasn't change. There wasn't any legal change. The uh, system of governance remained the same. There was no overthrowing in Prussia anyway, mm. or any of the German states, of any monarchs. But this idea stayed, and it just couldn't be shaken off. The I love idea it how you of, say that word, liberalism. by the way. Which one? Monarch. Monarch. <laughs> Like, no. I, I've never got monarch before. I, I, I tend to get eight or par or char. A, li- or um, like a little bit earlier, I was trying to practice how you say now, like before we came <laughs> on air. I'm not, I'm not going to murder it, but I was just, I really like the way that you say it. So I was trying to do no, it. I, yeah. No, no, no. I can't and do listen, it. I, I mean, I haven't lived in Belfast in, oh God, since 2004. So yeah, my accent is very, very diluted. Mm. Yeah, my friend Marty's got a very strong accent from um, uh, Belfast Way. Marty from Belfast. This is the second episode that Marty's featured in now. I know. He, he's actually coming on an episode. So I've, I've convinced him. Oh, brilliant. Him. Oh, that's good yes. to hear. Brilliant. He's, um, yeah, he's great. He's great. Very opinionated, but he's great. Um, but we like that. We like opinions from people that have absolutely have lived lived the life as we say anyway back yes. to the revolution impact on prussia well um the king well of course with any revolution then you've got your counter revolution the prussian assembly you know a precursor of 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 the german bund or uh the reichstag sorry uh was was pushed out the king dissolved it but again it was just this idea that remained and it just couldn't be it couldn't be shaken off at all uh which brings us to the man of uh germany in the 1800s probably the in at least the top five greatest modern politicians otto bismarck otto again is an amazing name Otto von Bismarck, absolutely. Is it really? Great? So I um, listened to a podcast recently and then I ended up reading a book about it. 
Um, I think it's a Philip Philip Sands book about a, a chap called Otto von Vector, and he was like a really high up in the um, uh, the Nazi Party, and he like escaped, but he lived in like really mysterious circumstances, and and they reckon he was like poisoned by the Russians. Oh, it was amazing. I'll um. I'll find out what it was called. and um, Oh, The Rat Line. That's what it was called, the book. Mm. Everyone should read it and listen to the podcast. It's amazing. Anyway, sorry. Otto van Bismarck. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, von... So he was von Bismarck. Von, in German, is the... Uh, I'm reliably informed, is a like an aristocratic Yes, uh, yes, it title. is, yeah. Uh, so Bismarck, I mean, he, I don't think we can ever overestimate the the power that, that this man had. He was a phenomenal politician. And uh, I think actually one, one of the German ships in World War One was the Bismarck. Uh, mm. Was that in World War? It was certainly during one of the World Wars anyway that, that, that it was sunk and, you know, was seen as a huge uh, Allied success. Um, of course, he would have absolutely tore his hair out at the idea of Germany entering a world war in the position that they did. And we'll go mm. on to look at his ideas on foreign policy later. But this guy had an amazing youth. He was one of those men um, in the 1800s with wealthy parents who just seemed to have unlimited amounts of money and just squandered it all until he finally settled on on uh, on what to do. It's almost like... His early years point towards him being a poet, you know? He, I really am. So let me talk you through it. Uh, now, I think, I know that you're a man of, of the left wing. You're a socialist. I am indeed. But I think you're going to yeah. like Bismarck. I think you're going to like him. He was right wing, very right wing, very conservative. But hear me out, because I've got a feeling that that you're going to think that this is a guy who who you could do business with had you been around back then. <laughs> I've, I've just, uh, I've got a picture of him up on the screen so I can, I can visualise it now. So, right, you're visualising. Yeah. Uh, I believe he had very fiery, was it blonde hair perhaps? Anyway, listen, that's, the, the, the photos are all in black and white. He's now, got a good tash, that's all we need to know. It, yeah, absolutely. Now his father Karl was a Junker, so he was a landed Prussian aristocrat. So they did their family estate uh Schonhausen for centuries. His mother, uh, Wilhelmine, was the daughter of a cabinet secretary. So this guy was born into power. Mm. Now, he, throughout the 1830s and early 1840s, he, and I quote the historian uh, Katja Hoyer, said, lived the life of a drifter. So he drank loads, he had loads of affairs, huge gambler accumulated huge debts at his time in university and just as we'd say in ireland he had the crack he uh, maybe i bribed... would be friends with him you see i i oh. I, I could say, i could hear your drink swelling there when i was pitching the idea of Bismarck <laughs> as you were going like absolutely not he said that he was in 28 sword fights in his first year at university so as a freshman <laughs> he got into 28 sword fights um so the years, uh, and these stand out now. So 1839 to 1847. So you can see that in 1848 was when his political career started. He was just lonely. He was bored. He was frustrated. And I think there is those ideas of of the poet um, coming out. Like he never wrote poetry, but it certainly seems um, 
the uh, that it would be who were the who did who, Byron? That's what I'm thinking of Byron and Shelley. You know all those stories of Byron of and Shelley. Of, that was that, that whole thing that was going on was basically a cult. Like whatever yeah, they were, wasn't it? whatever they were doing, yeah. Writing in Switzerland mm. and oh, it, but anyway, he he seemed of just that, uh, you know, just the the sort of rich, rich, spoiled young fella mm. who just uh, didn't know what to do with himself. So he had an excessive lifestyle. He was drinking, he was hunting, he was womanizing. His nickname was the Crazy Junker. <laughs> and uh, in eighteen thirty-seven, he he did what uh, many's. He's a young man who is off the leash. Does he married uh, his wife Johanna? Uh, she was von Putkammer, and and she was a you know she was his rock. They they had a lovely marriage uh, uh, right the way through right the way through their lives. Now, the year before the eighteen forty eight revolution, he he took a seat in the Prussian Assembly in the Prussian Parliament uh, because someone was ill. And he said, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll go in. And he loved it from day one. You know, he didn't love the idea that he would be representing anybody or, or, or any sort of any democratic nonsense like that. <laughs> he loved the intrigue, yeah. the plotting, the speeches, the debates. And uh, he, turns out, had an exceptional flair for writing speeches. Mm. Now, as I said before, this guy was an ultra-conservative. Um but he quickly, quickly got a name for himself just as a brilliant politician. And uh, after the 1848 revolution, it will be of no surprise to anybody that as an arch-conservative, he wanted to restore royal authority. So uh, he was seen quite quickly by the monarch Friedricher, Frederick Wilhelm, uh, to be a man who, who who really needed to be pulling the strings of power in Russia. Mm. So he was given the position of a Prussian envoy or envoy to the Parliament of the German Confederation in Frankfurt in 1851. So he'd essentially... That was a mouthful. Well done for saying that. Well, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't it? Thank that you was very, very much. good. But he still wasn't on the straight and narrow. So his, um, his reputation in the German Confederation, uh, see it as... Oh God, I was about to make a comparison with the EU there, but that that wouldn't be the wrong comparison. But I suppose, see, uh, in, in a way, how the EU, you'll have, you know, different people from different countries come to the parliament. Mm. Of course, and within the German Confederation, you, you would have uh, you would have had that. Uh, but Which, before, yeah, of course... Can I make a link there as well? Sure. So, um, obviously, you're talking about um, uh, Prussia, like before the unification. Unification? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of Germany now, ironically, Angela Merkel, like, is basically top dog <laughs> of mm-hmm. the EU, isn't it? It's funny how things mm. sort of turn out. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. And and in the book that I did most of my research for, called Blood and Iron, they the historian draws parallels actually with Merkel, saying that you know the Germans are comfortable when there is a sensible extremely gifted politician uh, mm. leading the country not a monarch you know just someone who is uh, who takes a firm hand but ultimately is is clever and mm. uh, represents the, the needs of the German yeah. people well I mean did you l- l- look at so I was oh, going to say did say you know <laughs> that's fine no, no go you no, go, please, you, please, go. You, first, you first you go well yeah I, I was just going to say that in the uh, 2016 crisis of uh, refugees 
Merkel w- was the person who, who put Germany forward and said, listen, we're welcoming as many of these people as possible. Mm. So she was not scared to take those difficult decisions that she knew to be right. And um, and I think that shows a lot about the trust that the Germans would yeah. have in, in a... In, in a leading politician but what were you going to say Owen? i was going to say with um uh angela merkel like i didn't really know sort of what party she was with and it surprised mm. me to realize that she's uh so the, the the party in full is the christian democratic union of germany so it's very much a religious party which I didn't mm, know. Yes. Well, I'm glad I, you, you brought that up because we will go on to look at uh, the role of religion in, in the creation of Germany. Mm. Uh, because, you, yeah, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think it, would you? But, the, yeah, the role of particularly Catholics in Germany uh, played quite a huge role. Mm, interesting. Mm. Because Protestant... I can't even say it. The Protestant <laughs> faith originated mm. from Germany. It did. It did in in North Germany, and mm. the Catholics would have been more in the south. Yeah, so like thinking Bulgaria, Italy. Like... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if you think Italy being a big Catholic country in the south, of course that Catholic influence coming up from the south. Uh, yeah, it was quite a crude uh, comparison, but I guess uh, a way to think of it. And yeah, North Germany would have been would have been quite Protestant. Um, but I want to come back to to religion later because Bismarck was very clever and in many ways quite cruel with with his religious policy. And it's not what you think. Um, mm. But now let me talk you through this, the, just this amazing uh, Bismarck, uh, Bismarckian, uh, if I could say that, um, incident. In that he was, uh, he, he was, let me see. So he was in the German Confederation and uh, he was having, you know, a political debate was going on and on and on. He pulled a cigar out of his pocket strutted across the floor to the chair of the parliament think of the speaker of the parliament if we're mm. thinking the house of commons asked him for a match and people people went crazy about how disrespectful this could be <laughs> but it, again it was seen as like ah oh, this young this young politician making a name for himself now then <laughs> the following year there was a politician called vink or vinka and he was jeering about bismarck and said all i know of bismarck's diplomatic achievements is the famous burning cigarette. And uh, Bismarck waited for all the, you know, the laughs and heckles and whoops to subside, stayed in his chair and just said that Vinka's parents had apparently failed to teach him any manners. Vinka lost it and challenged Bismarck to a life or death duel. Wow. And uh, it, it, it was on. It was on. Two days later, the two men, a doctor, and some witnesses met at dawn in a meadow outside Berlin. And they got this umpire with a wonderful name, Ludwig von Budelschwinger. Oh, that's an amazing said, name. And that was said, pronounced so well, Patrick. Well, no, let's, let's, <laughs> let's just hope that it was pronounced well. And essentially this umpire said, you know, gentlemen, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, let's call a truce. And Vinka said, yes, of course we'll call a truce. Yeah, absolutely. Bismarck apparently was having so much fun that he refused to call the truce. <laughs> so they did the whole walk your 15 steps away from each other and turn and shoot. And they both missed. And uh, I, I think that just that sums up his early years just brilliantly. 
just this idea that he's he's willing to die or kill someone invincible because, again to use the irish phrase it's just about a crack so yeah absolutely invincible um now he um five years after this incident uh prince wilhelm so again this is the man who would be kaiser wilhelm the first he he took over as as regent of uh of germany and his son friedrich he married queen victoria's eldest daughter who was also called victoria, victoria. yeah yeah and friedrich this is a great what if of german history was a huge liberal a huge liberal and wanted a liberal germany to go hand in hand with britain in in the future Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things to think, well, what if, what if? Mm. But uh, I think that's just one of those things to consider. So that was uh, 1858. Prince Friedrich married uh, Princess Victoria. Now, 1862, uh, Otto von Bismarck became the president of Prussia. And Wilhelm was totally reliant on him. Totally reliant on him. So... Quite a short time after entering politics, 14 years he got up to the top. I suppose it's not unheard of, but um, certainly shows how skilled he was. And he ran Prussia and then Germany right the way through until 1890. So for 28 years, this man was uh, really the the face of Germany. Of Mm. course, there were monarchs, there were other leaders, but he was... He was the boss. He was the boss. President of Prussia, then uh, Chancellor I hope I've got that right, of of Germany. Uh, now, here's one thing which I think, I think sort of shows his conservative viewpoint, this, this incident quite well, in that he announced uh, one week after he became president, he said that he was going to increase the number of peacetime troops in the Prussian army from 150,000 men to 220,000 men. And he gave a famous, uh, his iron and blood speech. And uh, he said he would do it without parliamentary approval. And he said that he would break the constitution because it was the right thing to do. And I think that, uh, I think that's uh, that disrespect for the law that you can see. I'm going to do it I'm anyway. Not, I am not going to name any politicians, but I'm sure within the last five years, we can all think of politicians in the West who have openly broken the law and said, well, listen, it's the right thing to do. And I think Bismarck was the first one to... Uh, yes, Otto, Hello, Otto. Uh, you're going to love this sentence. So liberalism as a fanciful intellectual indulgence. Oh, what a title. And he ignored all of the anger in the liberal press. So, you know, the liberal newspapers hated him. Could not stand him. Um he, if anything, he thrived on their on their criticisms of him, um, but he knew that liberalism would play a role in Germany. He mm. just didn't like liberals, so <laughs> he, as, as we'll go on to see later, he created the uh, national health service. He created national pensions. This guy got more done in the cause of liberalism yeah. than anyone in the second half of the eighteen wow. hundreds across Europe. But to use a phrase that I was planning on using later, he killed it with kindness. Mm. So he would make sure nobody voted for liberals because he would do liberal policies. Um, be it, you know, public spending. Really, when it comes down to it, 
it's a German phrase, which I'm going to pronounce because I'm, I'm a football fan, almost like I'm pronouncing Real Madrid, Real Politic. So he was a man, Real Politic, who essentially, it didn't matter what the motives were, as long as he was getting, his actions were completing the process that he wanted completed. So mm. let me give you an example. There was Ferdinand Lassell. was a key figure in the social democratic movement. He was a socialist. He was a Democrat. But Bismarck reached out to him uh, behind closed doors and they had uh, extensive talks uh, and you know what each man how each man would run Germany Lassalle was was more than happy to I suppose betray betrayal is a word used on the left a lot isn't it uh, of uh, of you know party principles and whatnot mm. he you know betrayed his, his his party but ultimately he was able to convince Bismarck to pass liberal laws to do you know liberal actions um bismarck didn't didn't really care <laughs> really who he was doing business with this was just a man who thought right i would rather do business behind closed doors and get the polit get the politics done mm. rather than uh rather than of the whole sort of show and in, in public and you know the sort of political dancing that you'll have around especially if people from opposing political parties are to work together and yeah uh, you get that a lot of coalitions up. don't you yeah you do yeah and he was a man who just thought well listen if we're gonna work together anyway she will do it behind closed doors because mm. you get a lot more done with you know some people having a drink together than you will doing the whole thing in front of uh in front of your supporters now yeah does really summed up bismarck quite well he said be careful about that man he means what he says that's really interesting. Good quote, isn't it? Yeah, that is mm. that is good. Mm. Um, Disraeli, I think I've been to his house, not when he was alive, obviously. Um, mm. Maybe I have. Maybe I have. That's it. interesting. What, what? What was it? A big sort of country home, or was mm, it more like I a, can't an really urban, remember an urban dwelling? I am mm. going to look it up as we speak. But whilst I am doing that, um, so we've we've talked about Disraeli. So what were like Bismarck's like ideas? like with foreign affairs um ah. like working with with other countries and stuff well i mean he was fantastic with uh with foreign affairs because he was very aware of the perception that prussia and then after the war with france what would become germany was a new player in the european scene mm. and he was very very careful never to upset a country unless you had strong friendships with several other countries. So this was a man who, I don't, I don't think it's any overstatement to say that if he was alive, World War One just wouldn't have happened. This was a man who was incredibly realistic, think real politic. Um, this was a man who... That's a big would... statement, Patrick. That's interesting. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, yeah, it is. And actually... <laughs> I mean, I did say about 30 minutes ago that I didn't know about German history uh, in, in this period until about a week ago. But let, let me pitch some, some, of my, uh, some of my reading here to you. So um, he wanted to convince other European powers that Germany was an ally growing stronger, not an enemy becoming powerful. Okay. So yeah. in the first you know, number of years as, as president of Russia, Prussia, my apologies, Prussia was uh, looking at Russia, which was written down there. He wanted to alienate Austria. So 
there was almost a power struggle between Austria and Prussia as to who would lead the German-speaking states. So Austria was the threat there. And what he did then was cozy up to France, Britain and Russia to make sure that Austria was now uh, was Austria was now not the light to follow. It it was Prussia. So he needed to convince then really the other 36 states that Prussia was the one to follow, not the old crumbly power of, of Austria. And he thought that, you know, the shining new military alongside the European support was the way to do this. So, for example, he gave Russia support in crushing a Polish uprising. Uh, now, he didn't particularly have problems with the Poles, but the way he saw it, if we can get Russia on side, then if there's any issues with Austria, then I've got the bigger boy in the playground kind mm. of thing. Um, now, once he'd, you know, he'd been flirting with Britain as as well, uh, and, and with France, of course, and... There was two events which really played into his hands and that in the early 1860s, the Danes uh, wanted to annex Schleswig to Denmark. I also love it how you just said Danes. (laughs) Danes, whose king was called Christian IX. Um, Now, essentially, Denmark wanted to take part of a a German-speaking population and and annex it onto Denmark. now Bismarck, of course, he, he went to the to the Boon to the German Confederation, and uh, said, "Right, this is our federal defense mechanism. We've been attacked, so let's get all the German states together." And uh, he got the Austrians on board. The Prussians and the Austrians went to war with Denmark, and then quickly got uh, Schleswig and Holstein back. They would not become part of Denmark, and um, so that was an idea of how he was able to have a war in Europe, but a war that was actually supported by everybody, <laughs> apart from the Danes. So he got the Austrians on side, but then he was quickly, quickly happy to turn on them. Uh, so because he was making all these powerful friends, uh, including Italy now as well, after the, the war with Denmark, um, Austria suggested... Because you could see, if you were uh, the leader of Austria, you could see that the writings of the wall here, that actually Prussia led the German war effort and like a small war. We're not talking like a Mm. huge war here. Prussia led the German war effort. So Austria's thinking, oh, right. Well, actually, we're Austria. You know, we're the we're the remnants of the old Holy Roman Empire. We're the Habsburgs. And um, they wanted to they wanted to review the uh, the the post-war settlement. So Bismarck immediately cried foul play and attacked Austria. (laughs) But because he'd got the support of Britain, France, Russia and Italy, that was fine then. Because actually he was the sensible guy. He was the leader in Central Europe. So he <laughs> he went to war with Austria and, um, you know, he annexed some land towards Germany. But again, it shows then that this manipulation, these, you know, secret meetings, he was able to use those to his advantage. It wasn't clumsy. Everything that he did was quite calculated. Um, And uh, I'm I'm sure many of our listeners would know that 1871 was the year finally when Prussia defeated France at war and Germany as, as uh, as an independent nation was was created. So. And uh, this was when they, you know, adapted their 
black, white and red tricolour. So you've got black and red are the old Prussian colours. And uh, white is the colour of the old Hanseatic League, which was actually would be an interesting podcast episode in itself. But it was, I suppose, like uh, an economic trade. Flags really interest me, like how Mm. they merge and why they become such a poignant symbol of, of, of periods of times or... Um, mm. of a people or a, yeah mm. it's just it's just amazing like I did a, a, an episode um, which I never actually finished which I probably need to get around to finishing it was a it was a two-parter and I only did one part so um, sorry about that <laughs> um, but it was um, about the Nazi brand and about how mm. um, uh, the swastika had been um, obviously used for for a long period of time it was a symbol of peace um, over in um, countries like Thailand and, and um, southern India, um, and then how it was sort of uh, taken, and and now it's very much seen as that sort of fear mongering symbol that we all know means extreme right wing. Especially in America, you get a lot of the the the, the neo Nazis, etc. And how mm. that flag mm. actually was designed and created, and came together. So yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just I, just, I find flags very interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, like, what caused the war in France? Well, a uh, an an issue in Spain. Oh. Believe it or not, and that there was a. <laughs> okay, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that, but yeah. No, no, it, it's uh, an issue in Spain was actually how Britain got Gibraltar as well, but that could be another uh, episode. So um, there was a power vacuum in Spain in 1869. Um, but if I could just quickly uh, go back on myself, actually, that um, in those three years up until this power vacuum, when. Uh, Prussia went to war with France. Bismarck uh, actually granted in Prussia universal male suffrage, uh, freedom of movement between uh, all the member states of the North German Confederation. So think kind of half of uh, Germany today, sort mm-hmm. of the, the North North German part. They regulated trade, introduced a criminal code, standardized weights and measurements. So this wasn't a guy who was who was waiting around. So. Within the three years uh, after the after the issues with Austria and the creation of uh, a North German Confederation, he, I mean, the the idea of universal male suffrage in in the eighteen sixties is is pretty pretty impressive. Uh, of course, early. listen, half the population couldn't vote. It's early, isn't it? Mm. Freedom of movement between member states, regulation of trade. Standardized weights and measurements to us today seems kind of basic, but that that was huge then. So you can see Although, that really. If you live in mm. Britain like we do, we mm. never quite fully went over to um, the the new system. So we still use yeah, that is true. We still it? use feet, inches, meters. So sorry, the meters is the new one, isn't it? But we use miles mm. and not mm. kilometers. We use mm. for weight. We use stone rather than kilograms it's mm. it's mm-hmm. yeah we were like yeah we'll 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 have some of that but we'll not have all of it um yards <laughs> well you, you, if you if you're driving on a motorway and you see the um uh it's like 300 yards 200 yards 100 yards mm. and that's mm. how it's measured still mm. Mm. 
That's mad, odd, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's funny that with standardized weights and measurements for us as like, you know, we, you know, as, as guys, you know, I, I've lived in, in Ireland where it's, you know, kilometers and everything's metric system. And then, you know, in Belfast, it, it's not. And then over here in, in England, everything <laughs> chaos. is, is, is mild, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, back then, if you've got 37 different states under one umbrella, each one would have its own system of measurements. And these systems of measurements would change every now and then so if you're if you're wanting to trade and your trading route is taking in four different german states Mm. then each time when you're going through uh, a customs checkpoint you would have to weigh all of your products again uh measure everything again uh declare it for the new state before going on to the next i suppose it's like time as well isn't it you used to get local time and that was actually like that was happening up until kind of the railway network in britain Mm. Mm. Um, mm. and then I always say to everyone like we are the centre of time because we technically are <laughs> uh, with Gre- true, Greenwich yeah. Mean Time yeah. everything yeah, to the left is behind time, everything to the right is forward of the map <laughs> that's how I remember it <laughs> yeah yeah um, but anyhow listen I've, I've, I've gone off on a bit of a bit of a tangent there so in 1869, uh, three years after the North German Confederation was created, there was a Spanish power vacuum. So there was no heir for the Spanish throne. And Prince Leopold of the Hohenzollern dynasty, I've definitely said that wrong, um, came into consideration. Now, this was the ruling dynasty in, in the North German Confederation. So this is the, the Kaisers that, that, that we know of. So suddenly then, Francis faced with this position. You've got the new kid on the block. Suddenly, your neighbour to the east just may well have huge influence to the south. So Napoleon III, nephew of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon I, really had no choice but to declare war on Prussia. But in the eyes of the public, Prussia was clearly the injured, so the, the injured party. So throughout Europe, the idea was, well, why on earth are France, attack, are France attacking Prussia? You can see why they did. But because of the clever uh, foreign policy of Bismarck, Prussia were, Prussia were ready to go. And of course, didn't I say that uh, previously that one of the first things that he did when he was president of Prussia was to increase military spending. Mm. So they were ready for a war. Uh, <laughs> And uh, they beat the French. Uh, they actually captured at the Battle of Sedan, second uh, of September, eighteen seventy. They captured Napoleon III. Oh, wow. Now, this is a bit that I find fascinating. Germany was declared as a new independent state in the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles. That is such a beautiful building. Isn't it just, but I, I didn't know. I thought that, you know, Versailles was just chosen as a beautiful location for the peace negotiations at the end of World War One. But no, it was chosen by the French to get revenge on the Prussians for the Franco-Prussian War to, you know, stick it to the Germans after World War One. And of course, uh, then we have Hitler, of course, then forced the French <laughs> in 1940 then to, to surrender to him so it, it is absolutely fascinating but listen the, the new nation state uh, in the 1st of January 1871 Prussia was no more uh, all of the separate states within Germany were, were no more it was now Germany now interestingly Wilhelm 
insisted that he was called Kaiser Wilhelm, not the German Kaiser. Because you would think, oh, who was the British king? Who was the Russian Tsar? Mm. He did not want to be called German because he wept the night before the creation of Germany because he would lose what he thought was a way better title, King of Prussia. What a, what a hard life, eh? <laughs> right. Oh, I thought it was poetic. I thought I was pitching a wonderful idea there. I mean, uh, it, it is lovely, but as a... Yeah, as a socialist, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah okay, enough, nice. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I. Pressure, pressure is a very cool word. I like the word pressure. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, like pressure as a as an area. Like, does it still kind of exist? I think it exists within Germany, let's say, in the same way like that England county. would exist within yeah. the United Kingdom. Right. Okay. I think more right. of like a province. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's um, interesting. So mm. now we've got the the new nation of Germany. Mm. Mm-hmm. How did Bismarck sort of bring the German people together? <laughs> well, how does any leader bring their people together, Ollie? Fear. They create enemies. <laughs> yeah, they create enemies of the state and um, Catholics this time were the enemies mm. so um he he played on what was already sectarian tension within germany and that the uh, there had been 30 years war fought uh, over 200 years before which began with the most amazing start of any war the defenestration of prague when uh, two men were thrown out of a window uh they were defenestrated and fell 21 metres onto a dung heap. Um, Jesus. Anyhow, I know, isn't that just great? Uh, the defenestration of Prague. Anyhow, the Catholics and Protestants within Germany, of course, were uh, quite distrusting of each other. Um, so with these liberal reforms within Germany, the defensive backlash actually came from Catholic groups mm. and from the papacy. So uh, the increase in size of the German state, where we start to see the creation of like a modern state of Germany, uh, the likes of schools, clubs, societies, they were all starting to come under just a little bit more and more and more of German control. And uh, this was quite worrying to Catholics, who, of course, Catholics you know maybe not so much in in the west today but certainly uh in, in in other parts of the world you know the catholic church do like to retain a lot of control on education mm. and now the pope in the vatican council of 1869 1870 pius the had created this idea of papal infallibility so this idea that the pope has to be obeyed no matter what which i think is bizarrely just such a weird idea for the 1800s. You could picture a Pope doing that for, for the Crusades. Um, but essentially, the Pope, uh, a couple of years before, had actually denounced liberalism, denounced national nationalism, and said that the separation of church and state were mistakes. So listen, Bismarck pounced on this and said, you know, essentially, anyone who wants to undermine German unity is an enemy of the state. So he was able then, in the first year of the creation of Germany, to create what was called the pulpit paragraph. 
So this was uh, forbidding the expression of any political view in a church. You weren't allowed to criticize the government in churches. Uh, there was also a school inspection law. And uh, one year later, he expelled all Jesuits from Germany. Now, um, are you familiar with Jesuits? No, there? I was just about to ask, what is that? Right. To quote my history teacher at school, Mr. Devani, uh, Jesuits are the stormtroopers of the Catholic Church. Okay. So you would have Jesuit schools. Uh, a close friend of mine actually went to a Jesuit school in, in Dublin. Mm. And their saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, is uh, give us the boy and we will give you the man. You know, they uh, would use, I suppose, all the tools of the Catholic Church, but traditionally confession, this idea of confession, I mean, manipulation, to uh, mm. to convince convince people to, to do the right thing. So these are highly trained. Sounds so weird, but highly trained priests with a big, big focus on on education. Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd wager, actually, that any neighborhood where there's a Jesuit school, house prices are going to be higher, you know. Um, so Jesuits were, and I suppose, I was going to say are, but no, Jesuits were, would have been in the past, something which would have struck fear into Protestant leaders because they would convert mm. and they would convert well. Um so uh, they were expelled from Germany. And this is all summed up in the wonderful German phrase, Kulturkampf, the culture war. So really, it's, it's quite interesting that culture war is a phrase that we see so much today. Mm. Uh, and, you know, many governments cynically will play a culture war card rather than, you know, governing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But listen, the... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we know <laughs> veiled that. criticism of yeah. our fearless leaders there, Ollie. Um, but uh, you know that the following year after expelling the Jesuits, the May laws totally subjugated the church to state control. And uh, what uh, Bismarck was doing here was was playing politics very cleverly. Of course, he was making enemies of Catholics, but Catholics responded. This was a democracy after all, with uh, full male suffrage. Any man in the country could vote. Interestingly, they had to be convinced to vote because most Germans didn't like the idea that they could vote. Um, there was a Catholic political party and they gained nearly a quarter of votes in the 1877 elections. So uh, when there was a new pope elected the year after that, uh, Bismarck met with him oh, and okay. uh, said, right, OK, yeah, you win. Uh, we'll, we'll just have a new enemy now. And uh, socialists became the new enemy of the German state. Uh, so again, we've got uh, Realpolitik, which, uh, which Bismarck was playing really well. So he took on the Catholics. He lost. At the ballot box, they showed him that they disagreed with him. He was wrong. So, so we gave up. And Bismarck he went on seems to, to change socialists. his tact and his side, depending on who is around that's mm. what it seems mm. to me. Mm. I think it just makes him such such a good politician, really. Um, mm. Playing the game. He was playing the game. I mean, you asked, you know, how, how did Bismarck bring the German people together? He created enemies. Mm. And he manipulated he manipulated politics very, very well. He was mm. a guy that did deals behind closed doors. I mean, doors. and that's without trying to get on my soapbox again. But that's that's kind of what happens... To this day, it's 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 oh yeah um, yeah yeah it's look at 
look at those people. That's the reason why you haven't got a job. And that's the reason why you can't do this. And that's... Mm. It's not Mm. us up here. It's you lot Mm. down there. And it's because Mm -hmm. they're they're from a different country or they've got a different faith. So they're they're the enemy, not Mm. us. So Mm -hmm. it's very much... It's very much done like that still. Um, Yeah. I mean, morally, it's wrong. mm, You know, there's no two ways about it. You, you, You turn people on each other generally through through use of the media or mm. through use of you know old uh, old stereotypes um yeah but of course listen many people would say but that's that's politics though isn't it so yeah yeah so get on with it it's yeah real politic uh, unfortunately so so that was how he brought the german people together of course time was on his side because when a nation like this had been created or a state like this had been created time will bring people together and of mm-hmm. course there was the the old defensive nationalism of the napoleonic wars but he sped it up of course by taking on the catholics losing and then taking on the socialists and hmm, we'll, we'll 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 come back to that we'll i was gonna to say that. did he win or did he not because the uh <laughs> The, what people don't realise is that the Nazi party were a socialist left-wing party to begin with. Oh, and name only. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. But like that's that's how they marketed themselves um, mm. as a mm. as a as a left wing as a left winger. I can tell you that that is not what we stand for. <laughs> it's a no, no from me. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. It's a no. <laughs> I think you speak me. on behalf of most of the planet. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Nazis bad. X cross. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Done. Done. Yeah. 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 Part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, did Germany become like a large industrial nation like straight away after its sort of creation? Yes. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yes. Overnight, I thought became... you were going to give me a one-word answer. Then, yep, next, <laughs> next, yeah, yeah. move on. Uh, yes, and here's why. Um, well, they had 41 million people. France had 36. Britain, including all of the United Kingdom, uh, 31.5. Austria, 36 million. Yep. Um, they uh, essentially. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. And I'll uh, I'll go on to uh, to go on about their national uh, resources. There was just one thing that that I didn't mention earlier was that they annexed Alsace Lorraine. Uh, you know that's sort of that in in our uh, I suppose what we would know as Year Nine or Third mm-hmm. Year history yeah. books would always be a cause of World War One. Uh, Germany annexed them, and Bismarck was always opposed to it because he said it will make reconciliation with France impossible, uh, and and he was right. But anyway, um, so overnight, I mean, Germany, yeah, it became a huge industrial heavyweight. I talked earlier about their coal reserves, iron ore reserves. They had large and deep rivers, the Rhine, Danube, Elbe, and um, they had flat plains for railway tracks. They had... Uh, uh, fertile agricultural land that could provide enough food to sustain immense population growth and uh, interestingly their railway network because they were late to the game Prussia did develop railways but nowhere near to the ex- to the same extent as Britain did but by the time Germany came along in the 1870s they realized hang on a second we're not going to focus on passenger transport we're going to focus on the transport of cargo and freight so they focused uh, everything on really the the theory of a rising tide will lift all boats. You know, if we're focusing on industry, then 
passenger services will will follow afterwards. Uh, so I mean, there's phenomenal statistics here of in the first two years of German uh, independence. Independence probably the wrong word, but of you know Germany, mm-hmm. uh, the production of pig iron, which is uh, you know required for construction, it. Uh, the production of pig iron rose by 61% in, in two years and went on to increase by 111% in, in the years afterwards. So really, Germany was absolutely thriving. Now, with this huge expanse in industry came, you know, sporadic crashes in, in the economy. When production became too much, then there would be a crash and then it would start back up again. So Germany wasn't this... Uh, wasn't in this constant boom there would always be a bit of a cycle of 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 boom and bust um but even if we look at agriculture here uh wheat production between the creation of germany and world war one wheat production grew by 50 percent the number of pigs raised increased from 7 million to 25 million uh sodium nitrate was introduced as a fertilizer there was steam driven machinery so uh the workers weren't necessarily well off because of the whole boom and bust uh, uh, economy. But the people at the top, the Junkers, the old-fashioned landowners, they were making a huge amount of money. And then, of course, this this new class uh, of, um, <clears throat> I suppose, industrialists were making a huge amount of money too. And what separated Germany then from... You know, you and I would have learned about the Industrial Revolution, largely mm-hmm. from a British perspective. Uh, yeah. Coal, trains, exports. Germany was focusing on chemical goods, electrical goods, mechanical engineering. And they overtook Britain as the, I suppose, the workshop of the world, wasn't mm. that the phrase that, so, was, that was bandied round a lot? Yeah, so Germany, even to this day, like is known as efficient the trains are known mm-hmm. as efficient. The uh, the uh, economy is known uh, to be efficient. They mm. uh, they still have some of the best cars. They, do you know mm. what I mean? Like they, this sort of engineered precision, I guess, comes from this period in time when this boom happened. And although they weren't the first to do it, they mastered it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The autobahns, for example, like no, there were no motorways yeah. anywhere else apart from Germany. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and uh, there's this idea as well that the British built the first factories, and the Germans then perfected them. Mm. So they made the factory system more efficient, and then of course the Americans perfected them on top of that. But the second half of Oh, I suppose I was going to say the second half of the 1800s, but really from the 1870s onwards, I mean, Germany Germany was thriving. Mm. But we have to remember that until 1890, when Bismarck was, was booted out of office, they weren't really a threat because of his mass machinations or mach- machinations but behind the scenes. He was a man who would make sure that, that Germany had allies. He saw Russia as, as a huge ally, Britain as, as an incredible ally. He... He uh, offered to Britain the idea that they have a military alliance in which Germany provides the soldiers and Britain provides the navy. And uh, Britain turned it down. Britain did not uh, like the insult to their ego. But could you imagine that then? Could you imagine the, the world history that if in the late well, it would have 1800s, been completely early 1900s? Yeah, because really, yeah, you've then 
of course, I mean, Germany, of course, the, the hint there was Germany would, would, would get colonies uh, around the world. But um, yeah, the, the world history would, would be totally different. But, mm. um, but anyhow, to answer your initial question there, Germany yet became an industrial nation straight away. The workers weren't always well off, but the quality of life did rise. And as within Britain and France and parts of Russia as well, so did people's spare time. People had more free time, hence, you know, the popularization of, of football and, uh, you know, cycling clubs and, and mm. things like that. Yeah. It's really interesting um, that I, uh, you're talking about this over a really short period of time as well and, like, the advances mm. that mm. are happening. Um, mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And um, the, you're absolutely right that this happened so quickly Um you know, and I suppose within any sort of time period. And I know that right now we're living in a huge communications boom. Uh, and, you know, it just seems that events keep happening and keep happening. But um, this isn't normal. And I suppose the the Industrial Revolution w- wasn't normal either. Mm. Um, That's interesting you say that. Be... Do you do you see that? Like, I mean, I've never even clocked that. The, the communication thing that's going on at the moment. Do you think there'll be a, like a lull after this? Like it's like loads of stuff has happened with the internet and and, and mm. all this kind mm. of social media and stuff. Do you think there be there be a lull for a little while? Well, there's a rule. I I I don't know the name of the rule or the law or the theory that since the 1970s it's either every 18 months or every 24 months, the power of computers. Again, I'm it either doubles or it increases by 1.5. And that actually still isn't slowing down. So from the old Amstrads we would have had in the early 90s to the Gateway 2000s to Dell computers um, to whatever smartphone you have in your pocket, they just keep increasing. And nobody really seems to know when they'll stop. Um, but I, I suppose what our society is doing now is is reacting. Well, first of all, we're using the Internet in, in brilliant ways, obviously. You know. We're doing it now to uh, record this podcast. Well, absolutely. I mean, and you and I have never met face to face. No, and uh, until, until July, yet, when I'm making my little trip. Until July, when you're coming to visit. Yet, yet, of course, you know, we we've met through the internet, and you know, become quite close. And mm. um, but but then, of course, you think about the paying of bills. That used to be done through through writing checks. If you think about our contactless payments, um, so if you think about really how how the world is is becoming run by the internet. Uh, but then obvi- obviously there's there's the media, there's the, you know, the, that phrase fake news, which was coined by Charles II when he called coffee shops false news. The thing is, they were proper, propaganda and fake news or whatever they, they want to coin it, it's been around forever and a day. It's not a new thing. Ah, but it's the speed. Well, that's the thing. It's mm. the speed of it today. Yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it, we're, we're certainly living in interesting times and as many of us would just rather not be living in interesting times, yearning for when life was boring. Mm. Um, but I, I wonder if I could just take us back to before, because I know we're going to talk about the death of, of Wilhelm I. I said that I would come back to you about killing socialism with with, with, with kindness. So yes. Bismarck, uh, he created socialists as the new enemy in Germany, took on the Catholics, lost, took on the socialists. So let me pitch this to you. Did he defeat the socialists or did they win this so he uh banned socialist organizations trade unions public meetings 
and le- arrested one and a half thousand socialists. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, in 1883, he passed a Sickness Insurance Act, which provided up to 13 weeks of sick pay paid for by the government. Accident Insurance Act, which was solely funded by employers, uh, which meant that if you get injured at work, your employer was was compensating you. And then a byproduct of that was that health and safety conditions became brilliant in workplaces because, uh, of course, companies didn't want to pay out. Uh, the year 1889 he created the old age and disability act which gave pensions to people over the age of 70 and those who could not work and famously created the first national health service so that seems quite socialist to me doesn't it yeah he killed yeah doesn't it he took votes off the socialists by doing what they wanted to do mm, interesting mm. that is interesting yeah, because mm. you you're kind of taking the the power there, but you're still mm. giving people. I don't know. It's like he's a not like a wolf in sheep's clothing, but the other way round. Mm. <laughs> mm. um, mm. Yeah, interesting. So I mean, he wasn't. I think in a good way, he wasn't a man of principle because. He, I mean, n- normally that's a stick to beat someone with, but, but if you're if you're making life better for the people in your country, then that's a good thing, and it doesn't matter what your motives are. His motives was his motives were to crush socialists and mm. socialism by pushing Germany really far to the left. Yeah, this was unheard of at the time, absolutely unheard of. Mm. Yeah, and we we had to wait till the Health and Safety Act at work, nineteen seventy four, and they were doing that way back when. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah. And nice. I think that um, I think I think that alone gives us an interesting view of Germany before um, mm. before World War One. Can I just and actually chip sorry, in there? On, yeah. yeah. So when I was in. I don't want to keep saying when I was in Berlin, but when I was in Berlin, um, I we went to the um, former headquarters of the um, the SS, and and you go round. It's just a ruin now, and you can go round. It's kind of like a. It's it's a bit strange. It's like a park, but it's still got bits of the gates and the building and and all that. Oh um, right. And you go round. It, it it's telling you about Germany, sort of pre. World War Two, so like in the Roaring Twenties, um, after after the First World War, between the wars, um, mm. and it was really interesting that actually Germany and especially Berlin were seen as very uh, liberal places. Like there were open, openly gay clubs. There were openly um, right drag wow. shows were a big thing. Um, it was uh, it was quite a, a liberal place to be prior to. Obviously, we we all know what happened, but yeah, that that sort of mm. period in between mm. the wars, it was it was quite renowned for being, um, being more accepting than we we yeah yeah we see it as, I guess. And I wonder, I mean, neither of us are experts on on German history, but I mean, could there be a link there that this was a a, a country that was that was taking care of its citizens? Um, 
I, I don't know. Perhaps it's an idea that the sub-expert would instantly poo-poo. But, but, but you're right. There's, there's, there's a wonderful liberalism in, in, mm. in Berlin. I, I wonder, perhaps, was that there in the early 1800s? And there is now as well, like massively. Yeah, it's, absolutely, yeah. It's yeah. almost like you I, can't... I've heard of someone that goes there and doesn't like it. Yeah, you can't defeat it. It's just like, anything goes. <laughs> like, mm. Um, mm. Um, so we know in 1888, Kaiser Wilhelm the first, died. Um, but how did his grandson, Wilhelm II, become Kaiser? Ah, uh, well, it's the great what-if of German history. So Friedrich, who was married to Princess Victoria, who was a liberal, he wanted parliamentary reform, he wanted closer relations with Britain, possibly could have got them. Mm. You know, possibly could have had a, a, a an alliance between Britain and Germany. Ah, dear. He had uh, cancer of the throat and he knew he wouldn't survive. So his son, Wilhelm II, who was in his 20s, was the man who who was going to take over. So Friedrich uh, did, uh, you know, what was emperor, but but briefly and and sadly passed away. Um, And, you know, Victoria, Princess Victoria was, I think, was someone who would have been who would have been one of those women in history that that we look back on as, you know, if Friedrich had have lived on as the German Kaiser. I think we would have looked back at her as one of these brilliant female leaders. Mm. You know, she's sharp-witted, outspoken, well, people called her outspoken. And she really probably, probably had an opinion, how dare she? Exa- Do you know exactly, what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> but but she, she was liberal too. So, you know, she seemed like one of those, you know, like our monarchy is a total lottery um, yeah, she seemed like someone who would have been uh, they almost not joint monarchs like William and Mary were of, of 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 Britain, but certainly somewhere close to it. And again, there's just those little crossroads in history where you you look back and think, oh God, no, what 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 could have happened there? But anyway, Kaiser Wilhelm II came in, and I'm sure many many, if not all, of our listeners will have learned about this fella at school. Um, and he was, let me see, uh, Bismarck called him a hothead who could not hold his tongue, was susceptible to flatterers and was capable of plunging Germany into a war without knowing what he is doing. He also said about the Kaiser, the Kaiser is like a balloon. If you don't keep fast hold of the string, you never know where he will be off to. I, I always thought that the Kaiser that we learned about at school is, you know, this guy with like, uh, psychological problems. Does, is it Kaiser Wilhelm II that had a disability as well? Yes, he mm. did. He did. Yeah, he. So he, when he was born, the doctors wanted to avoid a cesarean. Mm. So the doctor literally yanked him out of his mother's womb, <laughs> damaged nerves in his left shoulder, and he could never use his left arm. Oh. I mean, like horrendous practice. So this is. Um, so this is, I mean, what, what we're told is, so this is, the, you know, the traditional view again in Britain is he had a disability, so he was always trying to make up for this. This is the traditional view. He was always trying to make up for it. He wanted to be like Britain, but was so jealous of Britain that he went to war with Britain. Um, so let me, let me pitch you, uh, let me pitch you some, some information around that, shall I? Mm, yes, do. It's true. Now, he spent much of his childhood in England, um, and he loved visiting his grandmother, Queen Victoria. 
uh, he loved visiting her residence, Osborne House, on the Isle of Wight. Mm. Beautiful now, place. Wight, Again, I've been. Yeah, lovely. There we go. It's You could see at the time the Royal Navy sailing in and out of Portsmouth mm-hmm. and Southampton. Yeah. So this was a man who, you know, listen, as any child, if you're seeing military ships going past, you're loving them, really, you know. Mm. And he, of course, wanted this, wanted this for Germany. Um he also loved the style of the English aristocracy and would dress up to look like them. So he was someone who would dress up a lot. He loved um, he loved costumes and parties and and things like that. Uh, so this is these are his early years. And um, if we look at his political viewpoints, they're like they're quite shocking mm. for the late eighteen nineties. In eighteen ninety one, he wrote. The will of the king is the highest law. I mean, even if Henry the Seventh had written, let's say Henry the Seventh would have been king four hundred years before of England. If Henry the Seventh wrote that in the fourteen hundreds, like people would have looked at him and thought, "What the hell are you talking about?" Mm. It's so you you know that that's not the case. <laughs> yes. He was writing this in eighteen. And, like, I was and later down the line, someone is going to lose their heads because of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we think in 1891, I mean, the English Football League was going on. You know, in Ireland, we, we were playing Gaelic and Hurling in inter-county matches. And you've got one of the most powerful men in Europe, not just writing, but thinking that 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 he was appointed by God and could do what he wanted. So, of course, he wanted mm-hmm. no chancellor, no parliament, no ministers to tell him what to do. I mean... Do you he... think... I always think with these people who are in positions of uh, especially let's say the royal family like depending on mm. who's around you and like the people that are mm. around you if mm. they're telling you that you're amazing constantly and mm. you are the best thing since sliced bread or whatever then mm. do you start to believe it do you know what i mean is that where your opinions yeah. are formed um yeah i mean that they, they they must be you know i mean this he i mean he was just dangerous not i what I will say on his behalf was he became emperor, well, Kaiser, sorry, in his 20s. So Young. if we think back to yeah. Bismarck when he was in his 20s, sure, he was womanizing and having sword fights. So I know in my, in my 20s, you, you, you wouldn't trust me with a can opener. I mean, now granted, I was a teacher for half of my 20s. <laughs> were were, you, you, know were you womanizing I, I and sword country. fighting? Is that what you were doing? Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> um, but uh, now here... Here's the mad thing about the Kaiser. He wanted an, he wanted an empire, of course. Uh, his foreign policy was totally different to, to Bismarck. The German people loved him. He was energetic and he was confident mm. and they loved him. So from, uh, we're talking now, uh, so let me see, we're at the end of the 1800s. There was almost another industrial revolution and the, the industrial production in Germany in the last five years of the century increased by a third so the german economy uh between the creation of the german state and world war one had increased by 75 percent so he oversaw a boom um exports were, were going through the roof um wages were rising slowly roughly about a quarter so during so he became kaiser in 1888 we can't attribute any of this to him by the way okay. um you know he was in charge uh, in charge of 
I guess, what Germany was viewed mm. as. On, on, he had a know, great on, tash. On, on, on I've got some photos in front of me. He did, I'm didn't he? the tash. Yeah. He absolutely did. He absolutely did. Um, I was going to say, just... and a nice helmet, but I didn't mean it like that. I meant like... <laughs> None of us would have thought that. <laughs> no, it's just where my mind goes. You know them, them, them German helmets with the the um the point on top of them. Should I just stop yeah, talking? Yeah, the traditional Prussian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Um, no, that's fine. Um, it won't surprise you to know that he hated socialists. Um, but trade union membership figures by 1913 were up at at, at three million. Mm. So. He he just he wasn't bright enough. He wasn't a good enough leader to balance uh, to juggle all these balls in in the air that 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 Bismarck could. So we got rid of Bismarck in eighteen ninety. Bismarck was gone. Um, and uh, what gone because he's dead because, or gone because no no just fired just gone fired. okay gone yeah. Uh, Wilhelm wanted to be surrounded by sycophants, and uh, he was probably jealous of Bismarck. Of course you would be. Um, but yeah, he just surrounded himself with uh, the new kid on the who, block. Yeah, you know he. I mean his his theory. The people that that surrounded him said, "Listen, Germany needs export markets. We're overproducing. We might eventually outgrow our supply of raw materials. We need an empire." Um, and he he was more than happy to to try and pursue this. You know he he had chancellors. Um, before World War One, but there was never a big personality one. Uh, the, the first one after Bismarck was Leo von Caprivi, another great name. Um, and uh, he, he passed some good laws, you know, um, some social reform, working on Sundays was prohibited. Um, child labour under 13 was banned. Women were limited to working a maximum of 11 hours a week, but that was to stop exploiting them as a cheaper workforce mm. of course that's problematic um when when we look at it but the theme the i suppose yeah. was to stop the exploitation of women mm. um but here's the thing with 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 uh, von caprivi he, he was you know he was a good chancellor he was good you know if he was prime minister in, in britain president of america sure he was good but he was hopeless with foreign affairs and this is where things started to unravel for Germany. For example, he didn't know about a secret treaty with Russia that Bismarck had done. And actually, the Kaiser only knew about it because Bismarck happened to mention it one day. Um, so what we start to see then was just this delicate balancing act of what was that phrase? Convincing Europe that Germany was an ally getting stronger, not an enemy to be feared. That was thrown out the window thrown out the window so um caprivi eventually resigned he, he he couldn't balance the socialists the catholics the liberals the conservatives and the reichstag never mind the military now who wilhelm was surrounding himself with the junkers the old aristocracy um it uh it just it it, it wasn't working so the dominant force in politics was largely wilhelm but he kind of gave up with politics before the end of the century because he he just got bored by it. He just hated the idea, the idea that he would have to answer to somebody. And I know that feeling, course, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he 
he wanted to build a fleet that would compare with Britain, what he called uh, floating, or the idea was called floating politic. The idea that, you know, you've got your floating politics. Um, and then that became a, a source of Anglo-German friction. And uh, it was, he, the longer it went on, his reign, the more he was surrounded by sycophants. And uh, it, 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 it just didn't go well. I wonder if, if I could just pitch... If I could pitch uh, two incidents to mm, you uh, about the Kaiser, which I think sum him up, and I'm not going to talk about causes of World War One, but of course, long-term causes, we, we can see them here, but I'm not going to explicitly talk about that. Um, I suppose what I should say is that in the 1890s, America and Japan were also building up their navy, so was it okay that Germany was building up theirs? I don't know, maybe. Um, so uh, the Kaiser uh, read a book, by, and I'm going to pronounce this like the name of the American golfer, Alfred Thayer Mayhem, who was an American writer who wrote a book called The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. And the Kaiser loved it. Like, fair enough, we all love books. Mm. But he he bought 8,000 copies of it and gave them out around the Reichstag and would just give them to people. And, you know, constantly had this idea that, oh, I should really read this book that I'm reading. I think it shows us the future of Germany. It's a bit like a cult. It was written by, like, an American naval officer. Mm. Yeah, it was just a book which, you know, was written by a history geek like you or I. You know, it wasn't mm. meant to be influencing German German foreign policy. And now, in, uh, okay, here's an example. This is uh, example number two. Actually, I'm going to give you three examples of, uh, of, of the Kaiser's behavior and just how bizarre it was. Um. So Morocco was owned by France. It was a French colony. And he thought, oh, brilliant. So what I can do is encourage the Moroccans to get independence. And uh, yeah, you know, in a basic way, you're like, okay, that's, that's not a bad idea. So in 1905, he went to Morocco, rode through Tangier on a white horse, and then told the sultan that he should go for independence from France and <laughs> of Germany. Of course he did. Total, total support. Yeah, of course he did. And of course, the rest of Europe were looking on, bemused. It, and only Austria supported the German cause. Every other person, or sorry, every other country, of course, obviously, went against Germany on this. Mm. As a result then, like that's kind of whimsical and silly. But as a result of this, Italy and Russia started to build closer ties to France. So they thought, well, Who's the more stable power here, France or Germany? Clearly, clearly, it's it's the French. Mm. Um, and of course, Britain uh, and and Germany went into this infamous race with with their dreadnought battleships. Um, and Germany could never keep up with Britain. Uh, when you know the, Britain had thousands of ships at the time and was undoubtedly the most powerful country on the planet. They owned you know twenty percent of the planet. Um, now uh, the other. Uh, two incidents that I wanted to talk about were yes so he'd sort of given up on politics by the year 1900 and then in 1905 he tries to get involved in Morocco it fails so he got his reputation now as quite foolish and uh, he read the media which of course any leader is going to do but there was a series of articles published about him in 1907, mm. which said that he was a pacifist and, you know, all of the people around him were pacifists. It was like an article, which really it's 
no one really would have paid any attention to. Now, the author, uh, Maximilian Hardin, implied implied that Wilhelm could have been gay. Hmm. And, uh, of course, they, you know, there was this idea that, well, you know, if he's a pacifist and he might be gay, God forbid. Now, no one paid any attention to this. Hmm. But Wilhelm took personal insult, took the man to court... So suddenly he's in court declaring to Germany, I'm not gay, by the way. You're, people are going, look, what? no, we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what are you doing, Wilhelm? Now, of course, he was a homophobe. Hmm. Um, homosexuality was a crime in Germany. Um, so do you think it was, a, it was the biggest insult to, to, for this writer to say that he was gay? Just to p- piss well, him off, basically. Um, but the writer never said he was gay. He just, just he, he implied, sort of implied it. it. So it was... You know how, God forbid, but you know how like Trump had like the thinnest skin ever. You could say mm. anything and, he, and he'd, he'd, he'd get his back up. I think Wilhelm was, was the same, that this wasn't, uh, these articles weren't influential, but he made them influential. So suddenly this scandal so sort of became a thing of... backfired on him a bit. Yeah, yeah, totally backfired. Um, so that was one scandal, which was totally of his own making. Um, the second one is even more bizarre so <laughs> so essentially the kaiser went on holiday to dorset in england and uh, he you know obviously loved england and uh, his host was a man the ultimate english name not a double barrel name a treble barrel name edward montague stuart wortley and uh, <laughs> i know i know they talked about anglo-german relations and uh, his host then typed up a summary of these conversations, interview style, and wanted to get them printed, you know, because he, he hosted uh, the German Kaiser. So he sent this interview over to Berlin to, to get it approved. Now, obviously, you're thinking that that will not be published. Now, the Kaiser didn't bother with day-to-day things. The Chancellor was on holiday, so didn't read the transcript. So then it was passed on to the press officer, who was also on holiday, so didn't read the transcript. So then this document landed on the desk of a junior clerk who didn't feel confident enough to either, to either, to alter the Kaiser's words, so he approved it. No way. <laughs> this whole interview of the Kaiser was put out. The most infamous line in it is, you English are mad, mad, mad as March hares. <laughs> and, uh, well, to be fair, he had well, a point. Yeah, he did have a point, but he then bragged, this is just so bizarre, that his strategic ideas helped made Britain win the Boer Wars and that his foreign policy in Asia was aimed against Japan and that he alone had prevented France and Russia attacking Britain over their interests in South Africa. So he had a high opinion of himself. Absolutely, and with zero grounding. Now... It gets even more bizarre <laughs> that this interview was published and he, listen, the guy went into a deep depression for two weeks. Who wouldn't? He became a laughing stock around the world. Mm. So his friend, the general of the infantry, Dietrich von Hülsen Hasseler, um, to cheer him up, dressed up in a pink tutu and danced around on a hunting trip as, as a ballerina. And, um, you know, he was dancing around the room and people were really laughing. <laughs> and the Kaiser started to laugh for, 
for the first time in weeks. And then the general had a heart attack and died. <laughs> Whoa. Sorry, I'm sorry to laugh. This so the sounds... general who dressed... Isn't this so weird? Isn't this so weird? It sounds like an um, early version of RuPaul's Drag Race. D- yeah, doesn't it? Doesn't it? So this guy... Yeah, so this guy dresses up uh, as a ballerina, jumps around to please the Kaiser, dies... And then they've got a dead body on their hands, dressed up as a ballerina. So everyone had to quickly like strip off this dead man's body and be like, okay, if anyone asks, he was categorically not dressed up as a ballerina. <laughs> so. yeah, definitely not gay. Definitely not gay. <laughs> yeah, not gay. yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So just in case those rumors come back again. <laughs> yeah. We were definitely not a load of men out in the woods. Yeah. Prancing yeah. around uh, in, in. I won't in... tell you what we were doing, but I'll tell you yeah. what we weren't doing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So then, the five years before World War One, he was just trying to avoid public scandal. So. So there we have it, Ollie. That's that's the end. That this is we're, we've got up to World War One, and I've told you that there's a dead man in a tutu hastily being undressed by the Kaiser who wants to convince everyone that he isn't gay. That this needs to be actually was quite fun. <laughs> that needs to be the title of the podcast. I now need to change yeah, it. it does. Um, yeah, that's but yeah. I really want to do some more research on um, uh, uh, Wilhelm. The second. Um, like, he here's sounds... the thing. He seems like a character. Mm. And he seems like a guy but he's not. who... <laughs> no. But if he didn't have any power, then then he'd be he'd be okay. Mm. But um but no, he was sort he of was s- categorically awful. Mm. Sitting on that world stage, I guess you've kind of got people sort of judging your every move, haven't you? And especially yeah. if you're a little bit eccentric and a little bit um uh self righteous then people mm. are going to mm. sort of tear into you a little bit, aren't they? Mm. Um, I mean, well, that's the thing. And like, as I said before, there's that phrase that the historian Dan Snow uses a lot, you know, the lottery of, of monarchy. And, you know, I think that some of the great monarchs uh, have known their weaknesses and have known to get good advisors. Mm. And they know what they're not good at. And he, he didn't do that. And I think when... When monarchs can't do that, I mean, look at like Sir Nicholas at this time as well. You know, he was he was a joke. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's yeah. just a real shame that at at the time in world history, when the world needed strong leaders, they they didn't have them. Um, now was the Kaiser, you know, a warmongerer? Probably not. But did he surround himself with people who were? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So. It's always it's I always find it interesting again these people that are like the face of power. So mm. back then the the monarchs like now the politicians like it's mm. not normally I mean it's a, it's it's normally a collective of people isn't it but they mm. just become the mm. face of it. So yeah. someone will put a policy through for example and it's deemed as I don't know great but it actually wasn't their idea. It was like a million other people's mm. idea, but they just become the face of it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you. Were, I suppose you're only as good as your advisors. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's uh, what I find interesting about um, uh, the monarchy today. Now, the contrast you see between the current queen, who is very silent about a lot of things, Mm. very much duty-bound, and then you've got Mm. the younger sort of generation 
um, I'm talking Charles, I'm not talking like further down, who are, who are quite mm. outspoken. So it, mm. it's just that generational difference in the, in the people. Yeah. You can obviously tell they come from completely different periods of time. Um, yeah, in the, yeah, in absolutely. The, in the country. In the country, yeah. in I mean, the, I, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the British royal family, because of the British system of government, really are just in an eternal PR struggle, really. That's, you know, they're, they're, un, unlike monarchs of the past, they don't really have to make those huge decisions. You know, the Queen is the head of state, of course, but you get the feeling with the royal family, and it was shown so much recently, wasn't it, that everything just seems to be PR. Mm. Uh it's yeah, it's certainly interesting. Yeah. yeah. But listen, thankfully we don't uh we don't have this uh the likes of the Kaiser uh in charge of any actually I was about to say of any country today, but actually had it have been a year before, I think Kaiser Wilhelm made the American president look uh <laughs> look That was a bizarre time, wasn't it? Bizarre it was a, time. Thank God it's over, eh? Thank um, God it's over. Although I didn't realise that um Ronald Reagan was an actor until recently. Like yeah, prior, yeah, he, he he did at Marilyn Monroe, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I tell you that he, I, I only realised that because they reference it in Greece, and a, a supported person that I support um, was watching Greece, and they they reference Ronald Reagan, the actor, being the mm, president, mm. and I was just like, what was uh, he? So yeah, yeah, Back to the Future, they they make a joke of it too. Yeah, do they? No, he's an interesting guy because he yeah he and yeah and. Marty goes back to the fifties to nineteen fifty-five, and Doc says, "Oh yeah, who's who's the president in nineteen eighty-five? And you know, Marty says, "Ronald Reagan." He says, "The actor? Yeah, <laughs> come on." Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Reagan's an interesting guy, but that's that's another. He he was, you know, for it was. You know what? I'm not getting into him. I'm not going to make statements that, uh, <laughs> that might be American. I history. don't know much about um, American history at all, really. Um, so yeah, that's. Well, I mean, foreign policy-wise, because, you know, can't American presidents really influence foreign policy? He mm. saw the Cold War as a struggle between good and evil, and he was almost the right president at the right time to win the Cold War mm. because he was obsessed with it. He didn't know how he was going to do it, but he eventually did it. He, I mean, yeah, he, it's interesting. He was the first American president to really sort of weaponize the uh, extreme Christians and sort of get them on side and whatnot. Um but I've only ever studied him now in the context of the Cold War, so I wouldn't want to... Uh, I'm sure many, many, many of our American listeners would know a hell of a lot more of it, uh, a hell of a lot more about him than you or I would. But, yeah, an interesting guy nonetheless. Um, very ill towards the end of his presidency, but uh, the media were kindly didn't uh, focus on it too much. Mm. Ill physically or mentally? Mentally. Uh, I think at the United Nations once he made the same speech twice. Uh, okay. And... Yeah, I think Family Guy make fun of him. Uh, well, they make fun of everyone. Don't they? Yeah, but in a very specific and sort of early seasons, they make you know very sort of specific references to. I think I think it was dementia actually that that, that he may have mm. had when he was when he was in office. Um, it's awful disease. Awful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, which is yeah something uh, on a completely side note away from 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 wilhelm and, and 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 germany two of the things that i'm terrified of having is dementia and a stroke mm. Mm. terrifies me um yeah just a little fun fact for you there guys yeah. 
one, 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 one for the trivia. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, thanks so much for coming on again, Patrick. This has been eye-opening, because it's, it's a period of time that I don't know huge amounts about. Um, Pre-World War One. Um it was my pleasure. I I was dreading doing this because it, it, it's it's uh, heavy you, content. But you I've chose the blast. subject. Thank you for having me. I know I did. I did. I did. <laughs> this I can't was self-inflicted. Yeah, yeah, totally self-inflicted. But I think we had a good laugh talking about it. So yeah, thank you. This this was great. This was great. I was worried it would just be a one-hour lecture on you know German constitutional history. But Lesson. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Lesson. Lesson, of course. Okay. Well, thanks again, Patrick, and we will we will do this again soon. Thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you very much.